0: an amazing new episode of the influential executive today we all get to learn from one of the highest paid coaches on the entire planet for free yes this man is the coach of fortune 100 CEOs influencer of some of the biggest influencers in the world mr. Marshall Goldsmith.
1: why are we so excited about interviewing Marshall Well, not only does he share the stage with great names such as Barack Obama, Marshall Goldsmith has seen more companies and has spoken to more top-level CEOs than we at our age can imagine. In this hour interview, he shares his lifetime of wisdom with us. We're a big fan of his presentations that are available to everyone on YouTube and we are glad to notice how much our programs are in alignment with Marshall's teachings. As a growth minded entrepreneur you understand that your business grows how you grow as a person. You are the ceiling of your company. And it is your personal psychology which is the biggest cause of either success or failure for your business. How you think and behave either limits your company or it creates wonderful new opportunities. Marshall understands how this works and shares some of the most important things he's learned in decades of coaching.
0: This podcast is sponsored by our own coaching and consulting organization, Earn More, Work Less. Many people have asked us recently, what do you mean by the influential executive? And do you offer training programs that help people become influential executives? Let's start with a definition of what exactly an executive is. It is not what we originally used to think. Namely an executive is not necessarily somebody with the role of director or a c-level position. This is management guru Peter Drucker's definition of an executive. Every knowledge worker in modern organization is an executive if by virtue of his position or knowledge he is responsible for a contribution that materially affects the capacity of the organization to perform and to obtain results.
1: So basically every knowledge worker yeah. can be regarded as an executive.
0: Sure.
1: Well, there are two types of executives or knowledge workers. Those who have learned to be effective and those that didn't yet. Drucker describes how every executive should learn to be effective which means having the ability to set and achieve goals, define priorities, organize time, build on strengths and make effective decisions. Because without these skills, it doesn't matter how much knowledge or expertise you have, it's impossible to make a serious impact. You need to get things done. And as a new generation of leadership thinkers, we like to add one requirement, the ability to connect with other people. When a knowledge worker is effective and has the ability to connect with others, that's when true influence happens. A gold mine for every company. Only the bad news is that nobody is born this way. There's good news too, however. Everybody can learn it. It's only a matter of integrating a few simple principles into your habits and routines. And Marshall talks about some of these habits. And when you're really serious about becoming an influential executive or training your staff to become influential executives, make sure you check out the workshops and coaching programs on earnmoreworkless.com.
0: Once again, welcome to the number one podcast for growth-minded entrepreneurs. For all leaders who are ready to open their minds and apply what they learn. We are proud to introduce you to Mr. Marshall Goldsmith.
1: Marshall Goldsmith, welcome. Thank you so much for being available for this podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It is a true pleasure. And the reason that we invited you is that we speak about the influential executive. That's also the title of our podcast. And it's very much about leadership, about how leaders, CEOs, the captains of their ship can achieve even better results, even more impact. And we understood that you are there standing by the side of some of the biggest leaders in this world.
2: Yes, that's what I do for a living. My mission is helping very successful leaders achieve positive lasting change in behavior.
1: And I can imagine that you are having a lot of good conversations, deep conversations with many different people and I'm sure there are many differences. Everybody's different, but also many similarities. What are some of the main similarities that you find? Simple things that hold people back that you find are relatively simple to to solve or to move forward with.
2: Well, I was interviewed in the Harvard Business Review and asked a question. What is the number one problem of all the successful people that you've coached over the years? And my answer was winning too much. If it's important, we want to win. If it's meaningful, we want to win. If it's critical, we want to win. If it's trivial, we want to win. It's very hard for smart, successful people not to constantly go through life winning and improving how smart we are. When you're at the bottom of an organization, that's not bad. For the great individual achiever, it's pretty much about me. But as you move into leadership, for the great leader, it's all about them. And it's very hard to give up this desire to prove how smart we are and how right we are and win. As we journey through life, you've taken test after test after test to prove you're smart. (laughs) It's very hard to stop doing this. And the higher up you go, you need to quit doing that. Quit being the smartest person in the room and really focus not on yourself, but on others. So I'll give you a case study and see how you do. Are you ready? Bring it on. (laughs) Okay, you want to go to a restaurant X for dinner. She wants to go to restaurant Y. You have a heated argument. You go to restaurant Y. It was not your choice. The food (laughs) is awful and the service is terrible. Option A, you could critique the food and point out she was wrong. Or option B, you could shut up, eat the food, try to enjoy it and have a nice night. Now, what would you do? What should you do? Almost all my clients, what would I do? Critique the food. What should I do? Shut up.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Definitely. I 100% agree.
1: First of all, definitely go with what she
2: says. (laughs) (laughs) So, winning too much is one of them. The second one is adding too much value. Very hard for smart, successful people not to constantly add value. So, let us imagine you're my boss. I'm young, smart, and enthusiastic. I come to you with an idea. You think it's a great idea? Rather than just saying great idea, our tendency is to say, that is a nice idea. Why don't you add this to it? The problem is the quality of the idea may go up 5%. My commitment to execute may go down 50%. It's no longer my idea, boss, now it's your idea. It's very hard for smart, successful people, especially engineers, scientists, people with technical backgrounds, (laughs) not to constantly go through life adding value. Uh, One of my good coaching clients retired uh, several years ago, his name was JP Garnier, CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. I asked JP, What'd you learn about leadership as a CEO of GlaxoSmithKline? He said, I've learned a very hard lesson. He said, My suggestions become orders. My suggestions become orders. And he said, If they're smart, they're orders. And if they're stupid, they're orders. And if I want them to be orders, they're orders. If I don't, they're orders anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, it can be particularly hard for entrepreneurs to realize that, you know, their suggestions become orders. They're often the boss, they're the founder and it's hard to let go. It can be hard for the entrepreneur not to prove they're right all the time, not to prove how smart they are. And to really back away from that and realize I'm never going to scale this business if I don't develop other people.
1: Yeah, it's about assembling this team of people and empowering them so that they can be a leader for themselves and each work on their own front, so to say. What we find in the conversations we have with people around us and also with, with, with business owners and what we see with the clients we work with is that there's in the middle management and the level of team leaders, there's often friction. So the mantra goes, people join an organization and they leave their manager. So it's a direct manager that has a huge impact on the joy, the engagement that people experience while working somewhere. And yet most people, they, well, to keep it lightly, they're not very excited about their manager. Right. So, So what do you see go wrong there? Where is that friction created? And what advice can you give to managers to start turning that around?
2: Well, what typically happens is not that the manager is a bad person or an evil person who shows up wanting to disengage people. I mean, most people are good people. What I this is what I do for a living. I teach managers to ask for confidential feedback. Mm
0: -hmm. They get
2: feedback from everyone around them. Then they pick important areas that they can improve. They apologize for their mistakes. They involve their coworkers on a regular basis. They follow up on a regular basis with their coworkers. And we measure positive change in behavior. And we've got research from hundreds of thousands of people around the world. When leaders do that, they get better. Now, it's very easy to understand and it's hard to do. If you read my book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, you read funny story after funny story after funny story. It's tempting to read the book and think, these people are idiots. <laughs> you know, the idiots in the book all have IQs of 150 and they're CEOs of multi billion dollar companies. Well, I'll tell you, it's easy to understand. It's hard to do. It takes courage to look in the mirror. Courage. It takes humility to admit you can improve. And it takes discipline to do the hard work required to do the day to day effort that it takes to get better.
1: Yeah. And on top of on top of that, something that we found both in personal experience and with our clients is that there's this constant stress factor. So the pressure to deliver certain results within a compressed time frame, that, to put it lightly, doesn't accelerate the quality of your thinking. Right.
2: Yeah, we don't think as well when we're under too much pressure, too much stress, stress, especially if we're angry or having an emotional reaction or quality of our decisions tends to go down pretty dramatically.
0: You know, the podcast is named The Influential Executive. So I would like to ask you to share with us your perspective on or description of an influencer. Who do you see as an influencer?
2: Well, I've coached many great leaders and a couple of the ones I've met. Peter Drucker said Francis Hesselbein was the greatest leader he ever met. In his life, and he was the world's authority on management. Um, she was the CEO of the Girl Scouts for 14 years and very disciplined woman who never spoke when angry, never spoke when out of control, always positive, always disciplined, yet also could be very directive, very tough. Uh, my friend Alan Mulally was the CEO of Ford. The stock went from $1 to $18 while he was there. Same thing, great leader, positive. approval rating from every employee in a union company. 97% approval rating from every employee in a union company for a CEO. That just doesn't happen. Right. And loved him and it turned the company around from $1 to 18. Same as Francis, very positive, upbeat, great with people. On the other hand, very disciplined and could be directive if needed, Mm -hmm. you know, tough, yet fair and also very, very positive. We can confuse two terms, being positive and being directive. Sometimes you think I can't be directive and be positive. Both of these leaders were very, very positive people. At the same time, when they needed to be directive, they could be directive.
1: Yeah, I, I find that being directive is, is often needed simply because people around you, they need clarity. There's only one thing to do things right. Only one way to do things right and infinite ways to get it wrong. So being directive is good. And yeah, yeah. the keyword positivity, I just love that that comes up because from a completely different angle, we've been experiencing the power of positivity oh, 100%. very strongly.
0: Yeah. And related to that, you mentioned confidential feedback. So could you maybe share with us some tips on how to give an effective feedback?
2: Well, I know there are two different issues. One issue is confidential feedback. And in my coaching clients, I interview everyone around my clients. They don't know who said what. So that's all confidential. The other is face-to-face feedback. Mm -hmm. One thing I frequently suggest people do is actually less face-to-face feedback and do something called feed forward. Feed forward is a very positive, upbeat way to help yourself and others get better. And what you do is rather than dwell on the past, which you can't change anyway, you focus on ideas for the future. So rather than saying, here's how you screwed up that meeting, that's feedback. Let's talk about what you did wrong. You focus on, let's look at the next meeting. What are some ways we can do a great job in the next meeting? You can say about the same thing, but it's a much more positive way to do it. I practice this feed forward with hundreds of thousands of people around the world. I just did a class in Moscow with 20,000 people in Russia, in Moscow. They loved it. We did a little experiential activity where they all practiced this. So it's something that works all around the world. Saudi Arabia, India. I've been to 102 countries. So this works all around the world.
1: Wow, I can imagine. Ultimately, uh, all people are the same in many ways. Yeah. And w- one of the ways that, uh, or one of the things that many people have in common is that they tend tend to think too little of themselves. So often people can do much more than they think they can do. And now here you are, you find yourself in this phase in your life side by side with some of the greatest, the biggest influencers in the world. What is the moment that you discovered for yourself that you have this in you?
2: Well, you know, I'm very, very lucky. I met a very famous person named Dr. Paul Hersey. And he invented situational leadership with Ken Blanchard, a very famous man at the time. This was 41 years ago. I was 28. And he got double booked. He said, can you do what I do? I said, I don't know. He said, I think you can do it. Can you do it? I said, I don't know. He said, I will pay you $1,000 for one day if you can do this. I was making $15,000 for one year. I was 28. 28 years old, $1,000 for a day 41 years ago was a lot of money. So I said, I'll try. I did a program for the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. I was phenomenally successful. They were very angry when I showed up, but I was part of a two-week program. I got ranked number one of all the speakers. And he said, do you want to do this again? So that's how I got started. And, you know, you need support. So it's very good to have mentors, people who give you opportunities Now I was able to be successful, he opened the door. And if no one opens the door, it's kind of hard to prove yourself.
1: Yeah, that's right. The opportunity presented itself and you jumped in.
2: He presented the opportunity as well though. So it's very good to recognize our mentors and other people that help us in life. Yeah.
0: What can I do in order to choose the right mentor or the right coach? Because obviously, Coaches, we are more and more and more and different. Um, we have different goals and different specialties. So how would you right. approach this treasure, treasure hunting kind of for the perfect coach?
2: <laughs> well, first is I'm going to teach you something very counterintuitive. Do not start by telling the coach what you need. Don't do that. Don't go to the coach and say, I need strategic help, for example. There are too many coaches. There are too many coaches my mission is helping successful leaders achieve positive lasting change in behavior that's what i do now you're in amsterdam Uh, one of my great friends is the world's authority on personal productivity david allen lives in amsterdam well if you wanted to coach on personal productivity he's certainly a lot better than i am well don't go to me go to david allen so first you figure out what you need but then you don't tell the coach what you need you ask the coach what do you do best Now, if what the coach does best is completely aligned with what you need, that's good. If the coach gives you five things and what you want is down at the bottom, it's not good. Do not work with that coach. And then the next thing is ask the coach, okay, uh, let me talk to one of your clients or some of your clients and learn what you've done and how you help them. If the coach says, well, I can't do that. It's all secret. I'm very suspect. My clients are not secret. You look at my book Triggers, there are twenty seven major CEOs endorsed the book. Mm-hmm. They're not secret. Right? I don't have any secret clients. So, you know, if the code will, if the client won't talk to you about the coach, that's a very bad sign. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I admired what you what you keep saying is it's about the person, not about the program. Yes. And what we've experienced throughout our life and most most of all the two last years when we started our own business is that we've been coached by many, many different coaches and though so little of them really get to know us. Right. So they jump so easily into this is the solution. You have to do this. And if you don't do this, then you will fail.
2: Right.
0: So my question would be, how can I know whether the advice being given by the mentor or the coach is really the right thing for me to do?
2: Well, again, you have to, at some level, use be responsible. Mm -hmm. one thing i tell my coaching clients is uh i don't get paid because i'm a good coach i get paid because you're a good customer you really need to focus on what works for you
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, it takes some responsibility you're an adult right and you've got to look at advice i'm a buddhist buddhists can only do what i teach if it works for you if it doesn't work for you just don't do it well the same thing is coaching coach can give you advice You've got to ask yourself, does this advice work for me in my heart? Do I believe this is the right thing? If it is, that's fine. It's not either work with a different coach or don't take the advice.
0: I listened to many of your videos and read your articles and and you've really put the person in the center of your attention. And you say, it's not about me as a coach. I have to put my ego aside. It's about the person. And as well, that you do not tell them what to change, but they have to figure it out.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Because I just help people achieve positive lasting behavioral change that they pick. I don't pick the behavior. They do. And I don't tell you who the case stakeholders are. They tell me. Then my measure of success is they achieve positive change as judged by those stakeholders in the behavior they choose. And I don't get paid if they don't get better, by the way. There's a little difference. Yeah my coaching, I do not get paid one cent during the entire engagement. If they don't get positive lasting change in behavior, I don't get paid. So therefore I've learned, I have to have great clients. The client I coached that I spent the most amount of time with didn't improve at all. And I didn't get paid. The client I spent the least amount of time with improved more than anyone. I've coached 200 people got better and I did get paid who by the way, was a CEO of the year in the United States. So I asked him, what should I learn about coaching from you? You know what he said, pick great clients. You pick the right client, you win, pick the wrong client, you lose. Well, that's my job is having, I'm I'm not a great coach because I'm so wonderful. I'm a great coach because my clients are wonderful.
1: Brilliant. I'm starting to see a pattern here and that is that, uh, Mr. Marshall sees many things from exactly the opposite perspective and that can create a lot of clarity in many cases.
0: Absolutely, and based on what do you choose your clients? Because I've heard you have criteria. I think I've heard you speaking about that. Can you tell us based on what do you choose your clients?
2: Well, number one, uh, let me tell you: when I don't coach people, I don't coach people that don't care. Yeah. If people have bad attitudes, goodbye. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, my name is Marshall Smith, not Jesus Christ. So I'm not, in, I'm not, I'm not in the savior business here, right? So. Somebody doesn't care, you know, it's okay. Just don't waste my time. So I only coach people that are care that, care, that really want to get better. I never coach people that have integrity problems. You should fire somebody who has an integrity problem. Don't coach them. I, uh, sometimes I get requests to coach people with technical problems. The pharmaceutical company called, we want you to coach Dr. X. I said, what's the problem? He said, he's not updated on recent medical technology. You know what I said? Neither am I. <laughs> I can't make a bad doctor, a good doctor or a bad scientist, a good scientist. Uh, I only coach people whose issue is behavioral and they really want to change. And they're going to be given a fair chance. If those conditions exist, my stuff always works. If those conditions don't exist, it's a waste of time. Makes yeah. By the way, David Allen was my coach. If I was qualified to coach people in
1: what he did, I wouldn't hire him. (laughs) You mentioned in one of your interviews that we saw online, that you recommend every coach to make sure that they also educate themselves to become a good business person.
2: Yes. And that's, and, and, you know, that's really an issue for coaches. Many coaches are very bad business people. And they're good. some of them are very good coaches. They're not good business people. And coaches are often very weak at personal marketing. I just finished a book with, and many coaches are women. I finished a book with Sally Helgeson, just recently called How Women Rise.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And in our book, we talk about this. One of the problems that women have more than men is personal marketing. Many women have this ridiculous belief that, I don't know if you've ever heard this, my good work should speak for itself. Have you ever heard that? Um, all the my- th- That's ridiculous. My good work should speak for itself. If that were true, no company would need a marketing function.
1: Yeah.
2: All they have to do is do good work and it speaks for itself. That's ridiculous. Your good work. God has got better things to do than fly out of the sky and recognize your good work. You know, you've got to be responsible for your own personal brand building and marketing. You can't expect it to speak for itself. And in a way, that's almost egotistical when you believe that. Because what it says is, I shouldn't have to do personal marketing. I'm above that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You're not above that. We all do, you're going to be a
0: success. Something that I loved, uh, what one of our coaches said, Damien Elston, he is coaching us together with other coaches um, on sales, marketing and branding. And he said, you know, if you really believe that you can help your clients, then it's your responsibility and duty to be able to sell them. Because if you know you can help them, then you have to be able to sell them. And that was for me the click that I needed because I was more, I don't know if it was kind of a self-confidence issue or I didn't know really how to sell my professionalist side was trying to prepare and over-prepare, but that that was for me so important to realize how many people out there really say, I don't need to market. I don't need to sell. My clients come to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very good at, I'm very good at personal brand management. So if you do a Google search, helping successful leaders in quotes, the first 500 hits you see 450 are me (laughs) and the rest of the world is 50. Yeah, yeah, I'm good at that.
1: Has that accounted for a big part of your success and success is all relative, let's say the status of the clients you get to coach? Of course, yeah.
2: They're not gonna hire my clients are only going to hire a name brand. Yeah. They're not going to hire a known coach.
0: So, you got that one time opportunity when you were 28 years old. How, which steps did you make afterwards? What What was the progress? When did you realize, okay, I'm going to be a coach of uh, of. What happened?
2: Coaching, when I started doing coaching, there was not even anything called coaching. This was before there was even a field of coaching, you know, I've been doing this for years. So, uh, what happened is I, uh, worked with a CEO and he said, I have this kid working for us young, smart, dedicated, hardworking, driven to achieve jerk. He said it would be worth fortune to me if I could turn that kids behavior around. So I hear fortune again, I read fortune, fortune. I like them. I, I, maybe I can do it. Help it. He said, I doubt it. I said, maybe I can help it. No, I don't think so. Then I came up with an idea. I said, I'll work with this guy for a year. If he gets better, pay me. If it doesn't get better, all free. What did the CEO say? Sold. That's how I got into coaching. And, you know, who taught me that? I made it up. Where did I learn that? I made it up. Anything that's creative, you
1: make it up. One of the things that we find is that there's enormous value in spending more time and energy on the field of spirituality in Mm -hmm. people's personal existence, when they may feel overwhelmed or unsure what to do, or they may feel like they took a wrong turn somewhere during their lives. We see that looking at the bigger picture, bringing spirituality back into the discussion, it opens up a whole new range of doors, of opportunities can you share with us what are your spiritual practices i'm a buddhist i would consider myself a philosophical
2: buddhist so let me describe my buddhist philosophy buddha was brought up very rich his father was a king three times he was able to sneak outside the castle his father protected him from life he learned three things number one trip he learned you get old Number two, you get sick. Number three, you die. You get old, you get sick and you die. In other words, shit happens. (laughs) Buddha realized his father tried to make him happy by giving him more. He realized you can't be happy by getting more. Then he said that didn't work. He went out to the woods. He starved himself. He tried to have less and less. You realize you can't be happy with less. He finally realized in life there's only one thing you could ever be happy with, but what you have. There's only one time you can ever be happy. Now. Now. One place you can ever be happy. Here. In other words, this is heaven. This is hell. This is Nirvana. It's not out there someplace. It's all in here. Be
0: happy now.
1: Be happy now.
2: Make peace now, change what you can change, make peace with what you cannot change, and feed forward again, a very Buddhist concept. Buddha was very big in let go of the past. You can't change the past. No. You know forgive yourself whatever you did in the past, Forgive other people. you can't change the past. Make peace, Say, "Here I am. how do I make like the best of where I am right now? That's all you can do.
1: yeah when you say think forward, you refer to strategic thinking, not worrying about all the possible things that could go wrong.
2: And also feed forward. Feed forward is when you help others. You don't spend a lot of time talking about what they did wrong. You try to help them do something better next time.
0: Marshall, you have seen many generations entering the workforce or being in a workforce. How do you see the change in the work ethics when it comes to millennials and Gen Z, so the two newest generations? Have you perceived any change or any shift?
2: (laughs) Well, again, I think a lot of the writing on this is overdone. For example, uh, I was a hippie in the 1960s, right? Well, people said, oh, all the hippies care about is social values and blah, blah, blah. They don't care about business. Now now the message is all they care about is business. They don't care about social values. Yeah. Well, they're the same people. A lot of this is age. Uh, I met a man in India named Naran Murthy, CEO of Emphasis, a founder of Emphasis, one, an icon in India. And one night we were at a dinner, and he's my age, and he said... Uh, You know, he has a PhD from Berkeley, and I have a PhD from UCLA. I said, you know, Mr. Murdy, when I was young, I was a communist hippie. You know what he said? Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now he's a billionaire and I'm the number one coach. (laughs) Things change. He said, if you're a communist when you're young, that just shows you have a heart. If you're a communist when you're old, it shows you don't have a brain. Well, you know. I think a lot of attribution to young people is they're young, they're young. And a lot of these adjectives used to describe them or adjectives you could use to describe young people in any generation, the bottom line is you can be as idealistic as you want. After you work in Starbucks for five years, that goes away. And you realize it's tough out there. The reality is, you know, you live in a rich country it's not easy living in a rich country because what happens is the standard of expectation is very high and you're getting in you're going to face global competition and for example my daughter is a phd from yale in the management school there were 22 students in her department she was the only one born in the united states the only one most hmm. kids are not there to get drunk and go to parties they're serious well global competition is very 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 hard So the young people coming up are going to have to think much more globally, number one. They're going to have to be able to adopt the different cultures, number two. They're going to have to understand technology, number three. They're going to have to be great at building teamwork and relationships with people. So they're facing very different challenges, and I think a much more in many ways challenging world than I faced, or perhaps that you faced. Mm -hmm. Are you from uh, Holland? You're from the Czech Republic. That's a little different. You lived in the communist days. Were you were you there when they still had the communists?
0: Well, um, not not really. No. No,
2: you missed that. Yeah. That was not good. (laughs) (laughs) So you missed that. That was real bad. Yeah. But you you brought up in Holland. Yeah. Yeah. So you were brought up in a very uh, prosperous Western world. And uh, the level of competition for the young you is going to be very tough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: That's, yeah, we, we've seen how our cultural background plays a huge role in our relationship. And then communication could level it up. But we've really seen how my grandparents and my parents, how my upbringing brought me into having different beliefs and different values. And very many of them were self-limiting beliefs. So yes, Exactly. Do you you see a difference in those countries, for example, Czech Republic towards um, or versus Netherlands? Do you see some kind of difference in the beliefs that people carry?
2: Well, you know, it's hard because many people have been brought up in an environment where realistically being an entrepreneur was not encouraged. Yeah, no support for being an entrepreneur. In the old communist countries, there was no support for being an entrepreneur at all. So it's a different world. It's a different world and in some ways a better world. In some ways it's a harder world. For example, in East Germany, maybe a third of the people would rather go back to the old days. You now they had security.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: They
0: didn't
2: have to be under so much pressure. Well, you know, the entrepreneurial world is a tough world. It's a fun world. It's a great world if you succeed. It's a tough world. I've had a guaranteed base salary of zero for 41 years. So I know what that's like. There is no, if I get sick, I don't get paid. I don't get paid for showing up every day. I don't have benefits. 41 years, you know, every day you look at that number, it's zero. So you learn as an entrepreneur, you learn to hustle. You learn to work. And you learn that you can make it. On the other hand, you also learn it is tough. Most small businesses fail. They don't succeed. And, uh, you know, the majority fail. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard. So to me, it's a great world, a fun world. It's great if you succeed. It's a tough world. And going into the entrepreneurial world, you need to understand what you're headed into. And it can be very hard for people in the former communist country because there was no social support for that at all for, for decades.
1: A lot of it comes down to beliefs. So whether you make it or not as an entrepreneur is for a very big part a result of what you believe to be true and of the knowledge and information that you have available. And that is something that makes us love so much. What we do is we collect all this information. I'm personally, it was 10 years ago that I first got in touch with my first personal development book. And since then, I've been reading and listening to audiobooks for one, two, three hours each day, sucking up that information, applying it, learning from it, and then passing it on to the people we work with so that now they have that competitive edge as well.
2: You ready for some free coaching?
1: Yes, always.
2: Have you guys written a book yet?
1: Yes, I've written a book that is currently only available in Dutch. It's called how to get rid of stress at the office. Good thing is we helped already over 2000 people get rid of their stress.
2: Well, what you really need to do is build your own brand. I mean, there's a certain level you can listen to books and that's good.
1: Mm -hmm. You've probably
2: overdone it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you've probably overdone that and you need to say, wait a minute, it's time to quit listening to everybody else and start writing my own stuff. You know, sing your own song Mm
1: -hmm. exactly that's uh, very true and it's also one thing that we realized lately i would say especially in the past few months that's where we realized that yes there's a phase where you dive in you take all the information you find your role models and then at some point as you continue to grow you, you see that you have to find your own path you have to find your purpose and dare to be that leader that makes the decisions and it doesn't wait until others tell, tell you what to do. at a certain
2: point you quit reading my book and you become me. When I say become me, not doing what I do, but your own version of me.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Then guess what happens? Some nice young guy calls you on the phone and you do podcasts. (laughs) 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 That's right. (laughs) That's the goal.
0: It's challenging in nowadays world, I find, with all social media, where we like to get this approval, the silent approval of our peers and our followers, then just there to be different, be authentic, be unique. I think many people struggle with that. And what I hear a lot nowadays is people have issues with self-confidence. What would you say that is the reason for people having such a, such an issue with self-confidence?
2: Well, one of the things you mentioned talking about social media, I'm writing a new book about this. And that, you know, I'm, I'm very good at LinkedIn. So on LinkedIn, I have 1.1 million followers. Wow. So I'm top 100 in the world at LinkedIn. So I'm very good at that one. Social media can be a disaster, though, on a personal note. People who spend more hours in Facebook on Facebook are more depressed. It's not a theory, it's a fact, it's depressing, why? Number one, they see all of their, quote, friends and neighbors, but they see a fake version of them. Yeah, Yeah. Every vacation is perfect, all the kids are perfect, they take a thousand photos of themselves to finally find a good one and stick it up online, right? So they see this fake reality and it's depressing because they think my vacation sucked (laughs) and my kids are little monsters, but these other kids are these perfect angels, right? Well, the reality is the other kids are little monsters too, but you know, they, they just don't show that. So it's, it's really tough on two ways. One is you feel kind of, I'm not as good as everyone. And then number two, even if you're the one doing the posting, you know, it's fake feel like an imposter, you know, that's not really me. I'm just making some fake version of myself to put online. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, you really have to kind of try to get beyond that and say, you know, what matters in life and, you know, adopting some fake persona to try to get people to love you probably won't be very effective in the long run. You're always fake or an imposter.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's all the result of all these expectations around us. And at some point, there's, there's no more guidance. You know, you, you, you leave the house or you graduate. There's no more teachers, parents telling you what to do. You need to make the best out of it. But nobody really ever told you that <laughs> now that you're alone, you're going to have to make decisions, you have to watch how you talk to yourself. You have to have the right routines in place, because much of what you do is automatic pilot. Nobody nobody ever told us these things. And so it was for us a very natural process where we figured out how to deal with this reality, how to use this automatic pilot, how to reprogram ourselves to become a better version of ourselves every day, every month, every year. And something that's really big that has helped us a lot Um, and that our clients love as well has to do with physical triggers, things we place in our environment where we see it every day. Exactly. And you wrote a book about triggers, very important for everyone who's listening right now and for ourselves as well, which are the top three triggers that most people do not yet have in place that you recommend everybody to implement just because there's so much benefit attached to it.
2: I'm going to recommend one. It's called the daily question process.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Lenka loves that.
2: Series of questions put on a checklist and represent what's most important in your life. could be friends, family, health, whatever it is for you. Every question has to be answered with a yes or no or number in seven boxes across. One for every day of the week. At the end of the week, the spreadsheet will give you a report card. By the way, this will help you get better at virtually anything. It costs three minutes a day, and there's no money involved. Some people are skeptical. Get better at almost anything. Three minutes a day. It costs nothing. <laughs> Half the people that start doing this quit within two weeks. Yeah. And they don't quit because it doesn't work. They quit because it does work. <laughs> it's incredibly difficult to do. Anybody thinks this is easy has never done it. I've been doing this for years. I have a woman call me on the phone every day to listen to me read questions I wrote and provide answers I wrote every day. She called me yesterday. She's going to call me today after we hang up. She calls me every day. Somebody asked me, why do you have a woman call you every day? Don't you know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory about how to change behavior. That's why I have a woman call me every day. My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I got ranked number one coach in the whole world. I have a woman call me every day, why do I do this? I am too cowardly to do this by myself. I'm too undisciplined to do this by myself. I need help and it's okay. I need help and it's okay. See, once we get over this macho nonsense of we don't need help, life is better for all of us.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is.
0: (laughs) be vulnerable this is this is beautiful and why well, i was so happy you mentioned those questions is i watched your video and it was for me eye-opener because those questions it's not just like did you have a nice day you no, you you set yourself into proactive modus because you speak a lot about right. companies they try to do all kinds of initiatives for people to be engaged and happy right. and uh, increase performance very little of that um activity interest is being put to to the person. So Yeah. And how you formulate the questions is did I do my best today to I don't know, work right. on my work on my six pack or really eat healthy. So I, I love that. I'm definitely going to implement it. <laughs> and see how long do I last for
2: well, my advice? Absolutely. Get help. Yeah. By the way, how many of the top ten tennis players have a coach?
0: I would say all of them.
2: All of them. Of course. Why do they have a coach? They're already in the top 10 in the world. Yeah. That's why they're in the top 10. They have a coach. Yeah. I'm, one thing I'm proud of is really changing the world, the way people look at coaches. See, 27 major CEOs endorsed that book triggers. 30 years ago, no CEO would not to have a coach. They would have ashamed to have a coach, embarrassed them. Why do I need a coach? Mm-hmm. Well, today, these are very successful people. You know what they all say? I need help. Yeah. And it's okay. Now, let's see. Um, do you have anything that you want to fix that you haven't fixed in years? Do either one of you have one thing that you haven't fixed in years?
0: Wow.
1: Um, You're
2: talking about a certain behavior, I assume. Anything. Anything Could be working out, could be diet, could be health, could be listening.
0: No, I do. I do. I always feared um, talking to strangers, simply approaching people and start talking to them about whatever. And my fear that I discovered is that I will not know what to say.
2: Okay. Very good. And how many years have you had this problem?
0: I would literally say that it was since forever.
2: Good. All right. Then raise your right hand. Repeat after me. I've had this problem for decades.
0: I've had this problem for decades.
2: I have not fixed it by myself.
0: I have not fixed it by myself.
2: Who am I kidding? Who am I kidding? I'm not going to fix it by myself in the future.
0: I'm not going to fix it by myself in the future.
2: <laughs> I need help. I need help. And it's okay.
0: And it is okay.
2: It's okay. You <laughs> see, anything we haven't fixed in decades, why do you think next week is going to be different? It won't. Next week won't be different. Get help.
0: Yeah. We all need
2: help. I need help. You need help. We all need help. Everyone I coach needs help. Nothing good yeah twilight Tharp is the world's greatest dancer and choreography She's had the choreographer had the same personal trainer for 27 years why trainer doesn't teach her anything new this makes her do what she knows she should do but she hasn't got the courage to do by herself or the discipline so she hires a trainer that's why at 75 she's still beautiful she's smart you know what she says i'm the world's greatest dancer i need help and it's okay she's <laughs> She's not embarrassed, just get okay. help. What is the most common phrase uttered by smart people when people tell us something we agree with? Do you know what the most common phrase is? No, I agree with you.
0: No, I
1: agree no, with you.
2: No, I agree with you. You've heard it a thousand times. No, I agree with you. No, I think it's a fantastic idea. Oh yeah. No, I love that idea. It's such a great idea, why do you say no? Do you know what the no means? No of course I agree with you but of course I already knew that you didn't have to tell me see we're so afraid we're so afraid the other person may not understand how brilliant we are that it is almost impossible to listen to a person tell us something we already know without us pointing out we already knew it this is hard mm. very hard why in life, you've been tested thousands of times. You've taken test after test to prove you're smart over and over.
1: Mm-hmm. Prove
2: I'm smart, prove I'm smart. It's, hard to, it's hard to stop. It's very deep. It's very hard to stop it.
0: And could you share with us some tips on how, how to self reflect, how to remind ourselves of that behavior?
2: Very simple. Before you speak, breathe and ask a simple question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? My friend, JP, who was the CEO of Glaxo, said if he had the discipline to stop and breathe and ask himself, is it worth it before he spoke? 50 percent of the time, as the CEO of the company, he decided, am I right? Maybe. Is it worth it? No. No. Am I right? Maybe. Is it worth it? No. Have you ever tried to prove your wife was wrong on a minor or insignificant point?
1: I believe I stopped doing that a long time ago. (laughs) 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 And and I'm sure that Lenka will not agree.
0: (laughs) I think we both do it. And that's exactly in those moments when you are busy in your head and you're trying to formulate a question and you say it, you don't get the answer that you want it. And then you try to say something and then it just, you are not present anymore.
2: Right. So just ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Sometimes the answer is yes. Just, I'm not giving you the answer. I'm just giving mm-hmm. you a question. Yeah. I can't give you the answer to the question. Ask yourself the question, is it worth it? And if we just ask, you know, anytime you try to prove someone you love is wrong on a minor or insignificant point, it's usually not worth it.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, anytime you're trying to, somebody gives you an idea, you think it's a great idea, but you have to point out that, you know, more than them, it's not worth it.
1: It's very hard not to do this. I'm still, I'm still thinking about the, the leadership. So you spoke to so many CEOs and there are many, many more out there, from large companies, medium, small companies. If there's one gift material or immaterial that you could hand out to all of those leaders, what would it be?
2: Look in the mirror, find out what everyone thinks, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: be open, listen to that, always learn. And at the end of the day, as a leader, for an achiever, it's all about me. For a leader, it's all about them. <laughs> Very hard to stop.
1: Does everybody need a coach?
2: I can't say that. I don't know. I don't know everybody.
0: And would you recommend that small children have a coach?
2: Not an expert on children. I'm an expert at mega successful people who act like children sometimes. (laughs) I'm not an expert on children. And again, one thing also is I've learned if I'm not an expert on a topic, don't express an opinion. Mm -hmm. If someone else is a bigger expert than I am, why am I talking? Other people are far bigger experts than me, so I should not express an opinion, read their book. I learned it from my friend Alan, who is the CEO of Ford. He goes to Ford and the company is losing $17 billion to going bankrupt. He says, okay, give me your top five priorities each for the top 16 leaders, red, yellow, green. Green is we're on plan, yellow is we're not on plan, but have a strategy to get there, and red is we're lost. Not on plan and no strategy. The first meeting, red, yellow, green, 80 priorities, everything is green. Everyone says they're on plan. The Companies losing $17 billion, and they're all on plan. So Alan says, Well, wait, if we're all on plan and we're losing $17 billion, that must be the plan. We're planning to lose $17 billion. <laughs> Maybe we should have another plan. This <laughs> is a bad plan. Finally, somebody said, Red. I'm not on planet, I don't I to get there. My friend Alan applauds. He says, thank you. Thank you for having the courage to say red. Then he said something most to you I've ever heard say, you know what he said? You're not on planet, you don't know how to get there. It's okay. Then he said, I want to assure you one thing. My name is Alan Mullally, I'm CEO of the Ford Motor Company. I know much less than you do. Why don't we find someone who actually knows what they're doing and try to solve the problem? As opposed to, What would have happened if my friend Alan said, have you thought of, you know what the guy would have done? Yes, sir. Yeah. My suggestion is an order. Yes, sir. I've thought of it now, sir. What does Alan say? I'm not the expert. I don't know the answer. He doesn't make suggestions. He doesn't just talk. His attitude is if I'm not the expert, and we can find someone who knows more than me, why am I speaking? But what happens is, again, we've been conditioned literally thousands of times to try to prove we're smart. We've taken tests over and over. What's the purpose of a test? Prove you're smart. Over and over. So we've been conditioned never to say, I don't know. or Never to say others know more than me.
1: We love Marshall's positivity and his sense of simplicity when explaining things. We'll definitely integrate his daily questions into our routine as well and see what it does. And of course, when the experience is good, we'll make sure to integrate it as well in our influential executive
0: training programs. Make sure to check out Marshall's free videos on YouTube and also on his website. He has made many valuable materials available for free. What was the single biggest thing that you remember from our conversation with Marshall Goldsmith? Please leave a comment or like this podcast right now because we love to interact with you and get your feedback.
1: Thank you for listening. Let's all go out, connect with people and be happy now.